Welcome to Mysterious Universe Plus Season 24, Episode 2. Coming up on the show, we've got the Cowboy's Revenge, the Tokugawa Curse, and the Soul-Sucking Trees of India. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. It's not necessarily just in India that these soul-sucking trees can exist, but we are going to focus on a particular story that comes from India, which also ties into some strange curses that have been associated with leprechauns in wine barrels. Oh, leprechauns again. I know. Here we go. after I did that show of that story about this woman claiming that she somehow met this leprechaun and the leprechaun sent her on this wild journey. Go back and listen to it if you haven't heard it. He just got higher and higher as the episode went on. I started to realise, well, I don't think this is a leprechaun. I don't think that this woman is actually interacting with something that is necessarily good. I'll let you know, I actually didn't think that either. I thought she was possibly full of shit. Well, no, I wondered. Well, I wasn't so sure about that either, but I was wondering, look, let's say this is real. Let's say she actually is interacting with something. If she'd just taken two to three minutes to just do a little bit of folkloric research into Irish history, you would find that there is an evil drunken cousin to the leprechaun. Oh, really? It's a cluricorn. A cluricorn and leads people on wild goose chases yes. to get V-steamed it's, by Hawaiian mountains. It's like a terrible trickster spirit. I've got this crazy story of basically where it it, it, te- it drags people down the stairs. Like it gets into people's homes in the middle of the night and wrecks up the place. They're not good beings. They're not good at all. So we're going to go into that, but you're going Intriguing. to... The follow-up. I guess this is a show of two follow-ups because on the last episode, what was it, 2601, Mm -hmm. I introduced the mark inside, a perfect swindle, a cunning revenge, and a small history of the big con. It was the story of J. Frank Norfleet being scammed out of, what was it, $70,000 or something? The equivalent today would be like 400 grand he was scammed out of. Uh, Go back to that episode, 2601, if you missed the first half of this story. Basically, we left it where... He had realised he'd been scammed, yep. obviously, and it all came crashing down on him. And he had that weird vision of the name in, in the red diary that kind of floated into his third eye vision. He had this remote viewing experience. He pulled out the name of some random person he knew in this book, which was the diary of the scammer. And he just happened to find out that that person, had also, his friend had been scammed as well. Mm. This led him to discover that two of the scammers, it was Ward and Gerber, who posed as the the stock exchange secretaries, they had been arrested. Uh, so we left the story off where he was basically on the train back to Fort Worth, Texas, to testify against these guys. And remember, right at the end of the story, I said there was this strange man that was sitting opposite him trying to learn everything about him. Oh, that was his father, wasn't it? And as this guy kind of fell asleep on this long train ride, he realised it must have been the father of, mm. of one of these men who was arrested because they, they were the spitting image. And uh, when he woke up, he was trying to give him, you know, fresh cakes and sandwiches and, and drinks. And he realised that... Here, enjoy he, this. He, I won't have any. He was obviously trying to poison him because he wouldn't touch any of his own food. So let's follow the story of J. Frank Norfleet, this very principled Texan cowboy who now doesn't care about money. He doesn't seem to care how much he spends on this personal quest of vengeance. And he's willing to travel all across the country with, and he usually has four or five guns on his person at once. And he's dedicated to this quest to just take them all down. 
but he wants to use the same methods that they used to trick him. He just doesn't want to shoot them dead. He wants to use the same kind of uh, deception and in- intellect that that took him down. So he he's on this train. He's heading on his way to testify, and he realizes, okay, this guy is obviously dodgy. This guy trying to give me all his food. He's clearly suspect. So I'm going to have to be really careful. I'm going to have to be really cautious. He then proceeds to throw all of this out the window and starts chatting up this lady. And this this woman claims she was a detective before she got married, a private detective. And Norfleet just unloads the whole tale on her. And she promises to keep an eye out for any of the crooks that he's chasing down. Now, this is just an important detail because you see, as the story goes on, it's this weird... It's these weird strikes of luck that work in his favour every yeah. time. It's like, it's it's kind of strange, but I get this feeling. It's like, even though the guy's been scammed and something bad has happened to him, because he's on kind of like this righteous mission, it's like somehow fate is stepping in and kind of helping him along with it. Like him having this weird remote viewing vision mm. and, and these weird these moments where he meets people that help him out. It, he does seem kind of lucky, like there's someone up above helping him on this quest. So he arrives at Fort, Fort Worth uh, and he's followed by this strange man on the train, follows him, but he goes straight to the county jail to confront Warden Gerber. And he wants to know what happened that night after he got swindled. What did they do with his money? Like, where did they go? Where did they meet up? Now, the men tell him that they met up in San Antonio at the St. Anthony Hotel to divvy up all his money. Uh, but this led to a card game. And in true kind of, you know, Old West fashion, one of the members of the uh, the scammers, Hamlin in this case, who was the first kind of guy dressed up as a cowboy, pretending to be a cowboy in the lobby, he ended up losing all his money. And minutes later, he came back with a mask and a handkerchief on his head and proceeded to rob the hotel with his six-shooter. Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, so... Ward and Gerber, he robbed them as well. They didn't even get the money from the scam. They just ended up getting picked up for for another crime later, and now they're in prison. They wouldn't give him any info on where the rest of the gang was, so he basically had no more leads to follow until out of the blue, he gets a letter at his hotel, like a telegram, and it's from that PI lady he met on the train, just this random stranger he told his story to. She said that while the train had kept going, a man had boarded her train in Houston and to the poor, his description matched Fury. And if you remember, yes. Fury was the main guy who was acting as the the main stockbroker who was getting important inside tips from the, uh, the, the main men at Wall Street. He's the guy who would disappear out the back with 20 bucks and come back with 2,000 bucks. <laughs> yeah, he'd just come back with 20 grand Look at the end what of the I day. made on the market for you. Uh, so she actually said in this telegram that she eavesdropped on his conversation with some colleague and he started by telling this man that business in Dallas and Fort Worth, where Norfleet got scammed, was as easy as running a picture show. He said he was on his way to Miami to play the game. And then came the kicker. She heard him say... I think I'll stop off a few days in Jacksonville. So many of the boys are down there and I like to keep up with the gang and find out who all the new suckers are. 
Why would you be that blatant about it, though? It's like... Well, she was a PI. Maybe she was pretending to sleep sleepy. or something. She mm. was really uh, being careful at listening in. So this had to be Fury. And again, what luck that this random woman he runs into happens to notice him. So Norfleet, he, he grabs a small arsenal of guns. He grabs a bunch of disguises and he jumps on the next eastbound train. He, he wants to make his way down to Jacksonville. And... Uh, on a side note here, I should mention that Gerber is on trial and he tries to give up Hamlin, the other scammer that's right. still at large. To get a better deal, obviously. To get a better deal. Mm. Apparently, uh, this this is denied by the judge and this was all a lure because Hamlin gets, uh, I don't know, less cautious and comes out into public and he's then arrested. So there's three down now. Three of the scammers have been arrested. So the only ones at large are Fury, who was the main guy, and Spencer, who was pretending to be the suave businessman. So they're clearly, though, the ones that have been arrested. They're clearly just lackeys because none yeah. of the money has been recovered. They're kind of underlings. They're not the masterminds of the whole affair. So with this tip as really his only lead, Norfleet heads to Florida. His first stop is Tallahassee, and he manages to gain an audience with the governor, and he actually gets a... a requisition warrant that would allow him to take these men out of state without any interference from the police or local officials. And this is a really important document. It's really important that he gets this because it's essentially, he, he now becomes like a, he's not a vigilante anymore. He now has this kind of license to arrest these men. Now he chats to some local police officers when he arrives and he gets word, like the word on the street is that one of the key players in the big con, like one of these key guys, is allegedly staying at the Montezuma Hotel in Sanford. Now, so Norfleet, he gets into a disguise and actually checks in at the hotel. He uses a fake name. He goes under the, the name Parkinson and he has this story. And this is the weird thing. Like he starts to become like the scammers to catch the scammers. Yeah. He comes up with this backstory that he's a lettuce farmer and he's looking to buy land and he's talking very loudly in the lobby. He's like, I'm here to buy some land and i got all this money to spend. And he's being really obvious about it. And he's actually acting as bait. And fair enough, the next day when he's in the lobby, this blonde man saddles up beside him and starts making small talk. And eventually this stranger comes to the point and says, hey, sir, I believe you uh, mentioned a celery farm. Uh, I happen to pa be passing through the lobby and... I thought I understood you say you intended on purchasing one. My name's Johnson. And this guy Johnson introduces himself as a, like, celery farm agent. <laughs> yeah, and, because those things exist. Uh, Norfleet knows what's happening, so he kind of plays along. Johnson says, you're in luck. Uh, I'm making my, my way out to Daytona to look at some celery farming land, and why don't you come with me? So Norfleet's like, sure, let's do it. And he, off they go to Daytona. Now, while they're on the train ride, this guy Johnson, he makes a big hoopla, like he jumps out of his seat because a car drives past and he kind of goes, oh my gosh, that's that's someone I know. You'll know. I can't believe he's here. And he says, that man that just drove past, he's uh, uh, his name's Steele. He's the infamous stock trader who took $125,000 out of the stock exchange in a single day. He just drove past. I can't believe it. What a weird coincidence. How coincidental. <laughs> and uh, Norfleet's just like, wow, that's amazing. Eventually they arrive at Daytona and Johnson suggests that they take a walk on the beach together. 
It all kind of sounds like a weird romance yeah, with these it? scams, because, right? Yeah, because you have to include, even though it's not obviously romantic, but you have to include emotion. Like right. emotion plays a big role in pushing it's these scams. All about trust, getting to yeah. know each other. Uh, and who do they happen to run into on the beach? But that stock trader who had driven past. What a coincidence. Yes. So he introduces himself as Steele, um, and Johnson introduces Norfleet, who's going under this name of, um, what was his fake name? Pennington or whatever his fake name was. Um, and they actually invite him to a private club. And they, they use this as a stock exchange, this private club. And basically what happens is the exact same scam that Norfleet has gone through starts to play out. Like they ask him for some a, a little bit of money for something and he hands it over and then they come back hours later with like $800. Yeah. And then they're like, well, you can turn that into $20,000, come up to our private exchange and we'll make it happen. Isn't it incredible though how scams just haven't changed? Like even now when you get online scams and it seems to be more ubiquitous than it used to be, but they're always the same. Like it's always, a, mm. you can just pick a scam so easily now yeah. because it just seems to follow the same book. Like there's a recipe book for scams. Yeah, nothing's really changed, just the way that it kind of plays out with technology today. Mm. But essentially, yeah, it's, a, it's still a confidence game. They're trying to gain his confidence. But the difference here, obviously, Norfleet knows exactly what's happening. He's just playing along. But when they start to drive him up to this clubhouse, they, they take a chauffeur and... He's starting to get a bit nervous because it's taking much longer than he anticipates and it's getting further and further away from the town where he feels some kind of safety. Yeah, you'd wonder if that works you out. Are they going to shoot you? Well, because that strange man had found him on the train and was questioning him, he he had started to wonder whether the whole thing was a trap. Mm. So 30 minutes later, they eventually arrive, arrive at this club, this private stock exchange. It turns out to be this sprawling mansion that's wedged into the side of a cliff. You can see the rocks and the seaside down below. And Steele, who's the head scammer, orders the chauffeur back to town. Uh, but when they got inside this clubhouse, this is what, what really got Norfleet nervous because across from the front door, there was a table with just a ton of money on it. And on each side of the table was basically a goon holding a rifle and had, they had a six-shooter on their holster. And the site confirmed what Norfleet had begun to suspect, that this go-round of the big con wasn't going to play out the same way it had in Dallas. So this was changed a little bit. This is different. Now, Steele and Johnson, the two scammers, they head out of the room and they say, oh, we just need to conduct some private business. And they tell Norfleet the exchange isn't open and he just has to wait a few minutes. So they're basically going to set up their scam in the other room. Now, he looks around the rest of the room and it, it does, they've got all the extras hide. It's like I was explaining on the last episode. Everyone's there playing their part. Like there's someone calling in orders. There's a bunch of secretaries. There's a guy writing down things on a, a you know, a marker board. There's a, there's a ticker going around and they're all basically shills playing their part. And he kind of looks around the rest of this room and he can see the other rooms are boarded up. It's like they're just using a couple of rooms of this mansion for their scam. But he doesn't recognise any of the faces. And he he heads towards the pile of money and no one kind of stops him. And he picks it up to inspect it because he wants to see if it's actually real money the whole way through. Mm. And it is. So there's an astonishing amount of money. There's like hundreds of thousands of dollars 
just sitting on this huge table guarded by these two men. And he kind of, he feels horrible about it because this is like his money and this is the money of other people who've worked hard for it and had it stolen from them. But he's still, like, he's tempted to pull out his guns and start shooting, but he just wants to keep it cool and play the part. Now, just as he's doing this, he hears a a motor coming from outside and he goes up to the window and he looks down and he sees down near the docks and the rocks down below, there's a motorboat with a single passenger speeding towards the dock. And as soon as he sees this man, he can't quite make out his face or anything. He just gets this gut feeling and something clicks and it's like, something's not right. Hmm. Something's not right. Instinct. I need to get out of here. Yep. And since he could see, he couldn't find any trace of Fury, because remember, he's just trying to track down Fury. Uh, He actually goes to leave. He moves towards the door and he can see the man that's come from the motorboat. He's now running up the stairs towards the mansion. And before uh, Norfleet can get to the door, Steele comes in and steps in front of him, blocking his view. And Steele looks at him and says, we have an ideal location for work now, haven't we? And Norfleet replies that it seems to suit Steele's purposes perfectly. And Norfleet writes in his autobiography that in that minute of fill-in conversation, he said, Steele and I knew that we were wise to each other. He said, we both knew that the game was up. They're kind of looking at each other like, (laughs) like he knows it's a scam and he knows that he knows it's a scam. He said, I could feel that he knew I knew and he was ready to use desperate methods. So there's this weird standoff where they're just kind of looking at each other, waiting for someone to make the first move. Is he putting his hand on his hip? Well, yeah, he's getting his gun ready, like Norfleet's ready to make a move. And as they're staring at each other, it's like the gauntlet had been thrown down, but the fight couldn't start until the man from the motorboat had finished coming up the stairs. There was just something about this moment. Finally, this man bursts into the room, looks around wildly and finds Steel, walks up to him and slips him a note. And it was this moment because Steele hesitated. He kind of stuttered for a moment. This was Norfleet's chance. He moves towards the door and he actually starts waving goodbye. He's like, okay, everybody, uh, time for me to leave. Now, Norfleet, as he's waving, Steele lunges, grabs him by the hand and pulls him towards him. Meanwhile, Norfleet's other hand is going for his six-shooter. And in one kind of swift motion, he jams the six-shooter into Steele's solar plexus, uh, yells out, stick him up to the entire room. And everyone's kind of frozen because he's now got like the main scammer in this hold. He's got his gun to his chest. Meanwhile, this other guy, Johnson, is coming from behind Norfleet with a rope, <laughs> taut, about to like choke him out with it. Norfleet pulls out his other automatic and like his other holster in his leg. And now he's got this moment where he's like aiming two guns at different people what in is the he, room. John Wick? It's this crazy moment, this awesome Western moment where he's holding them back. He manages to take the two men hostage and back out of the room with these, these other guys in there with rifles and all this money. He backs out of the room with the two men and they're like, where are you going to go? We ordered the chauffeur to go back to town. 
What they don't know is that secretly before they jumped in the car, Norfleet had slipped the chauffeur some money and said, no matter what happens, don't leave. I want you to stay here and pick me up when I'm ready. Because he just had this feeling that something was going to go wrong. So he backs out. The car's still there in the driveway. He waves the car over and he, he manages to basically sit in the car with these two guns trained on these scammers and drives back to the main town of Daytona. Uh, he gets them, the chauffeur to drop them off at the city park and immediately they try, because they're under gunpoint and they're scared of this crazy Texan, <laughs> they start the sympathy angle. They're like, oh, my 84-year-old mother, her heart would break if her only son went to jail. Please, sir, please, sir. My invalid wife and my four sons, they need me. Like they just started pouring out all this crap. Uh, And then they resorted to money. They offered him gold and jewels and, you know, all sorts of stuff to let him go. Um, While they were doing this, they're pulling out all the stuff in their pockets. The note that the man from the boat had delivered to steal drops on the ground. I wanted to know what was on that note. Now, he quickly goes to grab it, but Norfleet's quicker and, and grabs the note and stuffs it into his pocket. He knows that he can't really do anything with these guys. He's got no charges against them. He's got no real evidence against them. He's not a police officer. And he can't expect much from the police force because a lot of them are corrupt. And he hasn't technically been scammed yet either. He hasn't been scammed and there's no sight of Norfleet. So he has to let them go. He just says, I never want to see you again. Get out of my sight. And he lets them go. He quickly jumps on the next train out of there. He just wants to leave because it's now very dangerous. But once he's settled in into the carriage, he pulls out the rumpled note from his pocket. And it says, that is Norfleet. Don't get him started. If you do, he'll kill every damn one of you. Don't let him get away, boys. Don't let him get away. And it's signed, Joe. Now, Joe is Joe Fury. It's got the same, like, flourish on the J. Is he some weird mastermind or some multi-level marketing of scammers? Yeah, it's like he's, unless he was there and um, Fury was there. Maybe how Steele worked him out. Norfleet never saw him. uh, And that's how he got a message to the rest of his gang. But it appears that he's kind of the boss or a mid-level boss of this very organized kind of crime organization that runs these scams. It would only make you more determined to find him, wouldn't it? Well, he immediately realizes that Johnson and Steele had clearly been working with Fury and he wondered how close he had been to actually being murdered in that pub. Like, like, close. If he hadn't been there at that right precise moment, like if he'd gone to the bathroom or something and Steele had gotten that note, he probably would have been dead. Now, Again, though, another twist of fate that seemed to work out in his direction. When he eventually got to Miami, uh, he got wind of a farmer who had just been swindled in Key West And guess what the swindle was? It was another fake stock exchange scam. So Norfleet goes out to visit this farmer, shows him a photo of Joe Fury, and immediately the man's like, that's him, that's the guy that scammed me. So he's travelling all over the country doing this. Yeah, so yeah, now he's in Key West and this farmer shows him the fake exchange building that was part of the scam. So Norfleet actually starts to stake it out. And finally, after three days, like he, you know, hides in a there's a tree that's fallen down in a storm and he's literally just like hiding inside the tree for three days. He eventually catches sight of someone he's convinced is Fury. It's He can't quite see his face, but the man is the same size and has the same kind of gait, the same walk. Norfleet immediately goes to the local sheriff in Key West. 
He explains the story and Sheriff gives him his two best deputies to go and help him capture, capture um, Fury. So the two officers tell him, look, we're going to go in and we'll flush him out. If we don't come out with him, you, you get him, right? You shoot him or whatever you need to do. So these two deputies go in and nothing happens. And Norfleet's just waiting out the front of this building, just going, what the hell is going on? Like he starts pacing back and forth. And then he hears this speedboat. He hears the engine start up. So he's like, what the hell is that? He runs out to the side of the building. He sees Fury escaping in a speedboat with the two police officers sitting next to him. And he's like, see you later, sucker! And he just speeds off into the distance. So he obviously has enough money that he can corrupt policing agencies as well. Yeah, this is a theme that keeps popping up. Like, Norfleet can't rely on the police because often they're on the take from these swindlers. So he immediately hires a a, um, a hydroplane. He gets another passport and he just heads for Cuba. He's like, they obviously went to Cuba. So Norfleet's like now heading to Cuba. He's circling islands. He's got his binoculars. He's trying to find the boat. He's trying to find where they went to port. I mean, the guy is foolish, like, though. They're surely not going to be able to find him that He's way. like the Texas Terminator. Like, he's just been programmed to never give up, and he never gives up. Even when they go to another country, he's just immediately he tries to track them down. Now, alas, he could not find them from his hydroplane. So he has to go back to uh, to the United States. He goes back to, to Florida. He eventually makes his way back to San Antonio. He has another lead that he can follow. Uh, in Ansoni, at San Antonio, remember that there was a hotel that they had all stopped at to kind of divvy up the winnings yeah. from his scam. He saw that uh, Fury had signed in under the name Jay Harrison. And remember, mm-hmm. the Jay had the same flourish to it uh, that he usually used. So he he figures out by following this lead and going to the local police station that there was a woman in the police station that was arrested for uh, shoplifting, right? And he gets in a conversation with this woman because she's begging innocence. And she says, I only sold one piece of junk. It was a Hudson seal coat. I swear to God, I never stole anything else. And when Norfleet says to her, well, why don't you just return the coat if that's the only thing you stole? She says, I can't. I sold it to this big spender at the St. Anthony Hotel. And she didn't know the man's name, only his rune number, 113. And he starts to think, could this big spender have been Fury? Like, it's just crazy. I, I don't even know how you would make the connection. Maybe just because he had had all you this money why? and he would yeah. have bought like an expensive coat. Back then, I've, I've read about this. There was like this adage of uh, it was in comic books. It was uh, it was strange. It was like when someone suddenly gets a huge amount of money, uh, and I guess it hasn't changed, but when someone who is new money, they just splash the cash. Right. So maybe that's what was going through his mind when the, the, the term big spender was used. Maybe he was like, could it be? Like it's the most tenuous of leads, if it's even that. Of but any, he goes to this hotel and he speaks to the, you know, the clerk and the manager and they let him look at the records for room 113. And? Well, th- there was a package that was sent from this room. There was a package that was organized to be sent. And eventually through the parcel post records and with the help of a federal officer, they go through all these records. Like it takes days. They find the, the record of where this package was sent. And what's weird about this package is it was shipped to no one from no one. There's no name on it. There's no receiver's name on it. There's no return address on it. 
It's just got a single address. It's 506 Stanford Court, San Francisco, California. California. And as soon as he sees that address, he doesn't even think twice. He just heads to California once again, jumps on a train, off he goes. Uh, he also visits the Stewart Hotel where he knew that Fury had stayed under the name of Peck. This was during, uh, remember his friend Kathy that got scammed as well? Yep. So on the way, he stops in at this hotel and he asks to check the, the register and the phone log. And by cross-referencing the two, he discovered that Fury had sent a telegraph to 684 Glendale in Los Angeles. Someone he knew in Los Angeles. So he manages to get the number for this address. He calls it and a woman answers and says, and Norfleet says, well, who is this speaking? And she says, this is Mrs. Fury. And he's like, holy crap, I've found the guy's house. (laughs) Why did he use his real name though? Why did he use his real name? Ah, uh, Fury. Yeah. No idea. Maybe he just never told his wife he was a scammer. He just, <laughs> I'm going on business. And maybe he was so books. arrogant about it as well, but he just didn't care. Well, he, Norfleet immediately says, uh, sorry, wrong number, and hangs up. And he can't believe it. He's tracked Fury to his own home. So he makes his way to this address. It's a huge mansion. Like, it is magnificent, this place. It's got multiple fountains and rolling gardens. And, and gardeners everywhere, beautifully landscaped. There's like marble pillars and huge doorways, like multiple story house. It's a b- beautiful, like sprawling 1920s mansion. Scamming is obviously a good field to be in. Yeah, and this is the dedication that Norfleet has for this. Across from the mansion is a park. It's just like a public park. Norfleet wears a disguise as a landscaper and does landscaping in the park opposite the building for days just to kind of scope it out. And as he watches, he only sees Mrs. what he thinks is Mrs. Fury leave a few times and she's always in a car so he can't really do anything. And then on the final day, a young boy comes out and starts playing with a ball in the street. And Fury, uh, uh, Norfleet kind of questions on whether he should go you know, talk to the boy because it's a kid after all. But eventually he goes up and talks to him, starts playing ball with him and starts asking him, you know, where his parents are. And he says, this little kid says, my dad's going to be home any day now. (laughs) And when he comes, he's going to have lots of money and he's going to bring me a puppy. Daddy always has lots of money. He's coming home tomorrow or the day after. Like, And so this is where Norfleet realizes this is it. He's coming home. We're going to get him. So the first thing he does is he goes to Sheriff Al Manning, who assigns two of his best deputies again, Walter Lips and William Anderson, to How assist. Did he not know that he wasn't compromised? He just well, I mean, this is the sher- this is the sheriff of uh, where is he in San Francisco? Surely, you know, big big honest city like San Francisco. Mm. Oh yeah, mm. uh, and he's got the two best deputy Walt with names like Walter Lips. Have you ever heard like a bad guy named Lips? No. Yes, <laughs> and William Anderson. So they disguise themselves as telephone repairmen. They go in, they map out the mansion, they know all the escape routes, they, they know they're going to catch the guy, right? And they tell Norfleet, stay clear because if Fury turns up, he might recognise you and he'll run. Mm. So just trust us, we're going to catch the guy. So Norfleet, off he goes. But after a day or two, he doesn't hear from them and he starts to get suspicious. They had warned him to keep far away, but... Was there perhaps another reason they asked him to stay away? Were they corrupt? I mean, with his last experience, could you blame the guy? 
So one evening he actually snuck back to the Fury house. He didn't go inside, but he just spied around. Couldn't see uh, Fury. He couldn't find Lips or Anderson anywhere. Uh, he couldn't see any officers on duty. So the next morning he goes to the sheriff's office and he's like, look, I, I went there. I couldn't see your men. Where the hell are they? What are they doing? This place has to be under watch all the time. I've got to catch this guy. And the sheriff says, well, if you couldn't see them, that's because they're undercover, dumbass. Of course you couldn't see them. They're the professionals. You're mm-hmm. not supposed to see them. Now let us do our jobs. Now he actually buys this excuse. And he lets them get on with their work because he has another lead to follow. A uh, federal officer, Jesse Brown, joins him in Los Angeles and Norfleet suggests to Brown that they uh, call the San Bernardino sheriff who was in on the case and look at these Stanford court apartments where the fur coat was sent to, right? So this is a really, really weird, elaborate kind of part of the tale and it tells you how Norfleet has changed from this straight shooting, you know, ranching Texan. He's grown up very quickly. To someone who starts to think like a scammer. Mm. They end up getting a lady friend of Brown's who's only 18 years old to dress up as a younger girl so she looks like she's in her early teens or something. And they send, because you can't get into these apartments, they're like luxury, you know, there's like three guards guards with with guns that don't let anyone through the door. Um, but they send in this little girl and she kind of sweet talks her way in. She says that she's selling a puppy to someone in room like 113 and she flirts with the got the lift guy and she manages to get up and she ends up getting into the apartment of this woman that he had sent the fur coat to with this crazy story about selling a puppy. And the whole reason she's sent up there is to just scope the place out. And she does. She checks it out. She learns that the woman's name is Mabel Harrison. It turns out it's Fury's mistress. Oh. And when she well, looks... Well, he's a scammer. Of course he's going to have a mistress. He's got this mistress. And he, when he looks in the, when she looks in the entryway on the, the coat hanger, the fur it's coat's fur coat. hanging right there. So it's clearly her. Uh, and she kind of... She makes her way out and says, sorry, you didn't want to buy my puppy, and makes her way out and tells uh, Norfleet all the info. So now they've got two ways they can possibly catch him. They can possibly catch him at the mistress's house or they can catch him at the the main house. But when he returns to San Francisco, he goes to the police department and he sees the two detectives, Lip and Anderson, talking in hushed tones with the police chief. And he's like, they're meant to be undercover, scoping out the house. And that's when he knows he's been had, that these guys are in on it. Of course they are. Now... As Norfleet would later learn, this is uh, what Amy Redding writes, Fury did in fact return to that home just before Christmas and he was ambushed by Lips and Anderson, the, the police officers. But Fury immediately tried to escape out the kitchen window, but the officers caught him. They ended up firing shots at the ground and Fury kind of stopped and gave himself up. But they didn't take him back to the police station. Why not? They took him to a local hotel and proceeded to ask for $20,000 to let him go. <laughs> now, Fury's like immediately counter-offers, like this perfected scammer immediately counter-offers for 15 grand. Uh, they agree and he manages to come up with the money. He gets his mistress to bring it to him. But in saying that, I mean, $15,000 or $20,000 back then would be what, the equivalent of $200,000? Yeah, hundreds of thousands. Yeah. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. Uh, so they keep him captive in this hotel room for three days. They get the money and he escapes with his mistress. He's gone. 
Um, he could be anywhere. And the thing is, Northfleet didn't find this out till later that he'd, he'd been scammed by those corrupt cops. But he's back to, you know, ground the ground floor. He's got no leads to follow. He doesn't really know where he should be looking. But amazingly, like something, some higher power is directing his search, he gets another lucky break. A contact he'd made in the telegraph industry informed him that Deed Fury, which is in fact uh, Fury's wife, had just received a last-minute Christmas present from her husband and he'd wired her some of money from Jacksonville, Florida. So what does he do? Norfleet goes all the way back to Florida. <laughs> Off he goes across the other side of the country yet again. But this time he has an extra weapon, his son Pete. Remember his son, Pete? Pete, he'd actually borrowed 40 grand off in the initial scam to try and get that fake money out of this fake stock exchange. So Pete's probably got, you know... He's got a vested interest in it. An interest in this case. Uh, he brings a new hat. He, he shaves off his moustache, which is his new disguise. Like, shaving off his moustache is his disguise. <laughs> yeah, it's like Superman and Clark Kent. Yeah, and they, they, they go off to, uh, to, to find Fury. And within 45 minutes of arriving in Florida... They had scoured all the top hotels in the city and Pete had seen him. Pete saw him in one of the lobbies of the hotels. It was in the Mason Hotel. They ended up like scamming. Well, obviously this is where he does his work. Mm. Like he looks for rich people in hotels. And then they ended up trailing him. They trail him to this local cafe and uh, they watch as Fury sits down. Now, Norfleet is so convinced that he's a master of disguise now even though like he's still a bow-legged Texan, he tries to sit at a table a few tables away from uh, Fury and just wants to listen in on whatever he's saying. But the head waiter actually drags Norfleet over and sits him at the same table as Fury. Hello. And it's this How moment. How you get out of that one? <laughs> well, basically, Fury looks up. Again, it's this moment like <laughs> he looks up and he's like, he recognises him immediately. And Norfleet looks over and is like... Bit of a double take. This moment where the two men are staring at each other in this cafe in Florida. And it's this point where Fury realises that he's been, he's been, like, ambushed. He leaps out of his chair and uh, in the same moment, Norfleet grabs his gun, points it at Fury and yells, you can't do it, Fury, you're my prisoner. Now, Fury, again, the master scammer, turns to the other diners, because this is a full cafe, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, he's trying to rob me. Don't let him rob me. He's oh, trying to take my diamonds. For clever. God's sake, man, stop this crazy Texan. He's trying to rob my diamonds. Now, apparently, because this guy's so good, he's got this, like, Steve Jobs reality distortion field. Everyone thinks that Fury is the good guy and Norfleet's trying to rob him. Like, yeah. that's just, they just take that story. Uh, and this just erupts the whole cafe. Half the people want to escape because they think they're about to get robbed. Uh, a bunch of men look like they're going to pounce on Norfleet and try and grab his gun. And there's just this huge commotion uh, and Fury changes to relief for, for just a fraction of a second before he feels his right arm being wrenched behind his back and another gun pushed into his side. And, of course, it's Pete 
who has come in from the rear entrance, like the rear entrance of the cafe. So again, it's this like this weird three-man standoff in the cafe. The the policemen are obviously alluded to all this chaos. They burst in and all they see is this guy or two men trying to rob this businessman. That's what it looks like. So they all get arrested, right? They all get taken down to the local police station. Now, when they arrive at the station, Norfleet watches as Fury looks at the sheriff immediately and he's like, mm-hmm. And the sheriff is like, mm-hmm. They don't say anything. They just yeah. have this look like, uh-huh, mm-hmm. uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I'll make sure that the money's in your account soon. And immediately the sheriff starts attacking Norfleet, saying, are you sure you've got the right man? You don't even know who this man is. How do you know this is who you're looking for? He just starts grilling him and Norfleet's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is, so he tries to tell him the whole story. Obviously the sheriff is on the take. And this goes back and forth and it looks like that Fury is going to get away again. But Norfleet has his trump card and he reaches into his bag and he pulls it out. And of course, it's the warrant from the governor. It's the warrant from the governor of Florida. Now, the sheriff obviously can't go against the governor of Florida. So he immediately drops the act. He's like, Fury, I can't help you, man. You're gone. These guys have got to take you. So with that... What a different world it is, though, that you just allow a civilian just to take a prisoner. And be yeah. Like, okay, off you go. I think, well, he's got a warrant from the governor. Mm, still. With that, Norfleet and his son Pete, they take charge of their prisoner and they start the journey back to Fort Worth. Now, the head deputy uh, lent them a service car and a driver, and he actually suggested that they go to the Dinsmore Flag train station, which is just outside of Jacksonville. And they ended up parking within a forest just outside the station to, you know, prevent Fury from stalling or trying to escape or anything. They just went out in the middle of nowhere. The very instant they crossed the town line, Fury starts to plead with Norfleet for his freedom. He's like, my boy, my boy, you know, let me go. I've got a wife and I've got a young boy at home and you you can't do this to me. He's like begging for freedom. Norfleet cuts him off mid-sentence. He just says, I know about all the suffering of humanity and the rash acts and I'm not going to take a brainstorm. So you may just as well save your breath. You're going back to Texas, he says. Like, no matter what, I'm taking you back to Texas. Yeah, the guy's a scammer. He'll say anything. He'll sell his grandmother down the river to get out of this. Exactly. So they they park in this forest that's about 300 yards away from the railroad. And as Norfleet got Fury out of the car, he led him to a tree stump. Again, Fury tried. Now, my boy, let's get down to business. Surely there's something we can work out. And he actually offers Norfleet 20 grand. And Norfleet pauses. He hesitates. And Fury hastily resumes explaining how he can get Norfleet this 20 grand. But he, didn't he steal 90? Yeah, but it's better than nothing, yeah, right? I so you're recovering some of your losses. He, ha- he could hand over the deed to his San Francisco apartment or he could give him his, half, his interest in this ranch he has in San Luis. Now, Norfleet doesn't want any of this because he, he knows the guy's a scammer. He just wants cold, hard cash. But But... Uh, Fury says he can actually, maybe one thing he could do is write a check payable to Pete for the full amount and Pete could go back to Jacksonville and cash it this very day and come back with the money. Don't trust him. There's something going on there. And Norfleet accepts this offer. No. Oh. Now, the, the author of this 
kind of inside story Amy Redding is like, he doesn't offer an explanation in his autobiography of why he did this. There's no explanation He's of the decision. Probably exhausted. He's been running, as you said, hiding in trees, running around back and forth across the country. He's probably exhausted. And 20 grand is still a huge amount of money. So at least he gets something back. But it seems, she points out, to undo everything that had preceded it. Like he really was this man of principle. And that principle had dominated his entire life up to this point since he was scammed. Was he really just going to toss that all away just to get some of his money back? Was it all about money the whole time? Was this Is this an insight into the guy's character? Perhaps there was no moral fire in his gut after all, she says. Perhaps it was just always about the money. Uh, so, no, you know, more than, I think he's just exhausted. Yeah, she points out he was no longer a Texas cowboy with his feet planted firmly on the prairie. It's like his identity had changed with this chase. It's like he got wise to the real world and he lost that kind of... <laughs> Texas cowboy innocence that he had. Now, Norfleet says, uh, I'm going to let you write out that order for the 20000 and I'm going to let Pete take it and present it for payment, but I want this to sink in and sink in deep. If you get Pete into any of your traps, if anything happens to him or if he isn't back here by the time the sun goes down, your light goes out. Is that understood? Fury agrees and Norfleet sends his son Pete and the chauffeur back into the moors of Fury's organisation. So they sit there and wait. And obviously they've got hours to wait and they start talking. And basically uh, Fury opens up and says, look, I've spent $17,000 trying to stay out of your way. Uh, if there ever was a nemesis, you, you would have been, you have to be mine. I have lost through your damnable hounding as much money as I've made. He's basically opening up that... Uh, that Norfleet has just been this massive thorn in his side. And it's like Norfleet includes this in his biography to kind of, you know, puff up his ego a little bit. Mm. But as they're waiting, they hear this car approaching and he thinks it's Pete. But it's not Pete. It's Fury's men armed with Tommy guns, four of them. <laughs> now, Norf Norfleet doesn't hesitate. He quickly grabs Fury, stands behind him, holds a gun to his head, and he says, like, tell your men to back off. Uh, Fury is screaming at his goons to back off, back off. He's serious. He'll shoot. He'll shoot. And these these four goons just kind of wait by the car. You'd want to kill him, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's a situation where he's got to keep uh, he's got to keep Fury as a hostage. Otherwise, he's dead. Otherwise, he's dead as well. But he's also starting to worry about his son. Like, what happens when Pete comes back and there's all these goons with guns here? Um, before long, uh, another car arrives and he thinks, oh, God, it's Pete. I hope he's okay. It's not Pete. It's another car of more goons. Oh. <laughs> Three more, also with Tommy guns. I mean, you would think he's not getting out of this alive. <laughs> this is a pretty bad situation now. There's like seven guns trained on him. They're all armed to the teeth. And just when it's starting to get desperate, like someone's going to make a move, Pete's Cadillac swings into view. And it's flying. Like, he must have saw the other men armed, and the car is flying. It roars past the goons, does this kind of 360 turn, pulls up in front of Norfleet, and he grabs Fury with a gun still to his head, and they pile into the back of the car, and off they go. The goons jump in their car in hot pursuit. And it basically plays out a little bit like this. 
Yeah, they're racing down. This gun's firing. It's ducking down. They're trying to get to the train station in time. They manage to uh, lose one of the cars in the forest and then they eventually come to the train station. There's more shooting. There's more, you know, crazy car chases. Uh, eventually, when they get to the station, <laughs> they think that the train is just about to arrive, right? But there's another family waiting at the train station. And our Norfleet can see the train coming. He jumps onto the tracks. He's trying to wave the train down, like, make sure you stop in time. And the family's like, ah, uh, the train doesn't stop at this station. It's an express that goes straight through. Oh, no. And they realised oh. the re that the the head of the police had sent them to that train station as a setup. Wow. Because he knew that the train wouldn't stop and they'd be screwed. So they jump back in the car and there's more of this. Take them out! <laughs> this just goes on for chapters and chapters, right? This epically long car chase, which I can't really explain on a podcast. Um, eventually, it. it's a car chase. It's a car chase. It's a good old movie car chase. Uh, amazingly, at one point in this crazy uh, car chase, Fury tries to grab the wheel. He's trying to steer the car off the road. He's making a desperate attempt to get free. Um, Norfleet smashes his skull with the butt of his, his gun. Uh, Fury passes out in the back of the car. And incredibly, amazingly, they make it back to Jacksonville and they jump on one of the last trains just as it's pulling out of the station. They manage to evade their pursuers. It's that just, must have been far enough ahead of them, though. But that would take a lot of... It's just like a movie. Like it plays out just like a movie. And it's funny, at one point, uh, the what, he, he says he looked down at the speedometer of the car and they were going like, hey, we were going 70 miles per hour. It was an unheard of speed. It was impossible. Like going 70 miles an hour is just <laughs> impossible. Never seen before. Um, so they, they eventually make it to the train, right? They, and they they settle down. Uh, and they're just like, man, I can't believe we made it out of there. Pete didn't get the money, by the way. When he arrived, of it, course was, he didn't. it was also a setup. And yep. he, he didn't get the money. He managed to just get out of there. So anyway, they're on the train. They managed to book like a compartment for themselves. And they're watching Fury closely. Um, and there's a bit of a distraction as um, Pete's explaining how he didn't get the money, how it didn't work out. And Fury kind of takes this as his chance he suddenly opens the door to the aisle and raises his voice to the other passengers. And he says, women, men, no women. And he starts unfolding this tale of deprivations that his captors are subjecting him to. He's like, I am but a poor traveler. I have been taken captive by these evil men. They have given me no food, no water. Like what a no prick. Pine what, what an absolute <laughs> prick. Just, and again, because he's so convincing, there's a couple of women who are like right next to him. Like, oh, the poor man hasn't had anything to drink and he's had no food. They start arguing with someone to go and get him some food. And this actually causes this distraction. And Norfleet and Pete, who are just standing outside, they, they basically come back into the aisleway and they're like, what the hell is going on out here? Like they step out into the aisleway. And this was the moment that Fury was waiting for because they turn back into the train cabin and he's just standing there with a grin on his face. Why? He looks at them and he says, good day, gentlemen. 
and he jumps out the window of the moving train into the night. This is an amazing moment. He just disappears into the night. And immediately they call the like the train engineer. They get him to pull the emergency brake. Norfleet uh, leaps out with Pete in hot pursuit. They've got their guns. They're like, where the hell is he? And eventually Pete disappears into the darkness. It's like early morning or something at this point. And, you know, Norfleet's like, I can't believe we've lost him again. Pete eventually comes back. He's like, oh, Dad, you'll never believe it. A train car was coming through in the opposite direction, and they picked him up, and he's gone. You mean a train, like an yeah, actual one train? One or of like those train push cars, things. Were those push things? Like, <laughs> there were two guys on that. <laughs> How were, cliche, though, is it that he smashes through a window <laughs> and he gets on a train car yeah. and pumps his way he's out of there? pumping his way. This is a Looney Tunes. But it, it was just one of those maintenance cars. And it, again, because he's such a good scammer, he had like a scam ready for them. He had like some sob story. He's like, oh, I fell off the train. I had too much to drink and I've fallen off. Take me back to the station. So these men helped him. Now, Norfleet's like, what the hell are we going to do? He looks a couple of tracks over and for some I don't understand how this works. They must have been close to a station or something or a dock or whatever. A couple of tracks over, there's another train that's not going anywhere. It's just stopped. So he quickly runs over to this other train and he speaks to the engineer and he just tells him the whole story. He's like, there's a fugitive on the run. I've got to catch him. He's going back to, to Jacksonville or wherever they were. And he's like, you've got, to, you've got to help me catch him. So the engineer's like, I'll help you catch this crook. Let's go. And they jump in this freaking steam but train. They just have a steam train waiting there, ready to go. Yeah. How long does it take to fire it up? I don't know. This is the story. So what plays out, and I, I wish I had a movie that I, where I could play you like a steam train fight, <laughs> but I couldn't find one. Probably you needed something from Wild Wild West or, yeah. you know, maybe even back... You needed the Back to the Future. I think in one of the Sherlock Holmes videos yeah. that, of movies, there's a steam train battle, yeah. but they just talk too much and they got British accents, so it didn't really work. But there's, there's a full-on... There's a steam train chase. Like, Norfleet is up the front with the engine with his guns, with Pete on the other side, and they're racing down the tracks trying to catch this other train, this you other car. definitely should have used Back to the Future 3. That would have covered it. <laughs> All I could find was this. <laughs> Add a few gunshots. Bang, bang. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll just leave it playing. So, they're on the train and he doesn't know what to expect. He managed to send a telegram ahead to the police and say, there's another train car coming. You've got to stop it. You've got to intercept it. But it's kind of an anti-climax compared to the action that you've just read because eventually they make it into Jacksonville and he sees the train uh, with police going aboard and as they're pulling in, he still sees the policeman pulling Fury off the uh, train car. So obviously, oh, right, okay. So, so they have arrested him and Fury's completely messed up. Like he's got blood pulling from a wound from his face. through broken glass he's, from a moving he's train. He's limping. But what a way to escape I in know. style. I <laughs> think there's part of all of us, I'm sure, that was like, that's a really cool way to escape. If I had to get out of a situation, that's the way I'd like to do it. And I picture him jumping backwards through it as well. Like he didn't even turn around. <laughs> he was just staring at them. And he just waved goodbye. And jumped. As he topped his hat. And yeah. Good day, gentlemen. With his monocle and top hat and just bounced through the window. Uh, but they ended up, he's obviously bad, badly injured, but they ended up 
um, taking him in. They managed to get him back to Texas to face charges. It took them three days to get there. He tried to escape several times, and apparently in the autobiography, Norfleet details how clever he was to stop him from escaping. Uh, He pleaded guilty on two counts of swindling Norfleet, but civil law still offered him the opportunity to defend himself, which he did in court. (laughs) It'd be funny him trying to defend himself, represent himself. Uh, But he was found guilty on both counts pretty pretty much immediately, like the jury didn't take long. Uh, He waived his right to appeal. And a week later, he was moved from the county jail to the state penitentiary in Huntsville. But that's not the end of Fury's story. Because just a few weeks after he went in, there was an escape at the Huntsville Penitentiary. And who do you think escaped? This man, he's incorrigible. It wasn't Fury. Oh, it wasn't? It was his cellmate. His cellmate escaped. And... Let me guess. What are the odds of this, right? Did he escape to go and get cash to buy off people or something? So here's the thing. The escapee was Mark Wheeler. And the district attorney in Los Angeles who had arrested Lips and Anderson, those two corrupt cops, he had received some weird tip that Fury was about to get out of jail somehow. Because remember, his his wife and his mistress were in LA, so maybe word got around that way that he was going to get the funds somehow to bribe his, himself out of jail. Uh, it was rumoured that Mark Wheeler, the guy that escaped, his cellmate, was part of the plot and it was involving some $30,000 bribe. So immediately very suspicious. Three days later, there's a massive riot in this prison. 24 prisoners riot and escape. They charge at the guards with pistols that were somehow smuggled in. They broke into the prison armory. Um, They shot their way through the guards and ended up getting out of a side entrance. And when I read that, I was like, oh, well, Fury was obviously one of them. No. There was a rumour that there was a plane fueled up in an airfield nearby with two women, you know, ready to fly him away. Uh, But it said in the local newspapers that prison authorities said they were unable to establish any connection between the prison escapees and the Joe Fury case. In fact, they said Fury remained securely in jail throughout the entire riot, spending most of his time in the dining hall. According to the legend of the story, one of the mutineers actually offered Fury a pistol, but the swindler looked down his nose at the man and said, I don't riot with rabble such as you. It was the idea that he didn't want to use violence to escape. He wanted to use his craft to escape. So there's a certain air of, it's not morality, but he has standards, I suppose. Yeah, remember on the last episode, Amy Redding was explaining how their con was their art form and they, they had pride in themselves and that they didn't use violence. They, they used their artful um, acting mm. and, and psychological theater. techniques, their theatre, to, to win over this, their, their marks. Perhaps it was this. But if his game wasn't to break out in the riot, what was Fury's game? Well, it turned out he died just a year later. And... In prison? He died in prison. Well, he... Did he though? He died in prison. (laughs) It took a full week before there was any mention of this in the paper. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram in July of 1922 ran the story that he had died. He died of a tumour in the insane ward. Uh... And his body was being shipped to Oakland 
to lie next to the grave of his mistress, Mabel Harrison. His wife is unhappy about that. She had died a few months earlier. But was this the end of Fury? It was a deputy working under the LA district attorney who first pointed out that Fury had died at least once before. This wasn't the first time he had died. Yeah. Uh, then the Fort Worth Star-Telegram suddenly remembered something Fury had said as he left Fort Worth for the penitentiary at Huntsville. Apparently, when he was being dragged out after his trial, he said, Someday you will read of my death at the penitentiary, and there will be a new grave in the penitentiary cemetery, but old Joe Fury won't be in it. I'll be elsewhere. <laughs> and then he got dragged off to jail. Uh, so the the LA District Attorney telegrammed District Attorney Brown in Texas and asked him to make a positive ID before shipping the body west. Brown replied that the coffin had already been sent. ID would have to wait until the shipment reached its destination, which it turned out wasn't Oakland, but a funeral home on Sutter Street in San Francisco. Now, while this was happening, each newspaper was putting forward their theory of his latest con, like how he had done this, when it was suddenly discovered that the body had already been buried on August the 1st. This was the undertaking firm of, of Housestead and Company who announced that it had, it had buried Joseph Fury near San Francisco in Cypress Lawn Cemetery, cemetery conveniently without a service. Only a few people had stood by the grave, including a mysterious young woman who represented herself as Fury's niece and who herself became a sudden object of curiosity. It was soon revealed that she was the same woman who had paid for Fury's body to be shipped west and that she had travelled from her home in the east to take up residence in the Hotel St Francis before Fury had died several days before he had died. So this suggests that there was a con. Of course there was a con. Because, you know, she's obviously not going... Obviously, if he had just died, she would then organise transfer of the body and then travel to the hotel so she could be at the service. Why would she travel to the hotel, stay at the hotel, days before he died? Unless she knew... Unless she knew... He was about to die and his body was about to be shipped out. Wow. So no one actually Is that it? no one actually knows what happened to the guy <laughs> until six years later. Cause he's technically dead in the state of Texas, right? He's legally dead. They they didn't go any further. They didn't dig up the body or anything. He's just legally dead. Six years after his death. A Joseph Fury is arrested for impersonating a federal officer in a scam. And it's basically... Why is he using his original name again? Well, no one really knows if this is the real Joseph Fury or it's someone that just used his name because his name was famous at that point. Mm -hmm. But it was basically a guy who uh, tried on a scam and ended up getting arrested by an undercover agent. Uh, And during the trial, he claimed that his real name was Joseph Fury. Apparently, his... Like his physicality matched. He had the same kind of look to him, but... Did he want to be caught? Is this part of getting fame? Because they're doing theatre in a way. Is it? Is he driven by not just simply doing the scam, but more 
showing what a great scammer that he well, is. The problem was, in order to save face, everyone involved with it in Texas, of course, wanted to what say that it? no, he's dead. He died. He he's dead 100. percent There's no way he escaped. He definitely didn't bribe me. Yeah, definitely. I, I bought those Cadillacs from my own hard work. Yeah, <laughs> like, no one wanted to admit to it. Uh, he was sentenced to three years, which he served. Then he was never seen or heard from again. Some say he's still out there running scams right now, <laughs> being <laughs> a Nigerian prince or something. Uh, so the the only guy left was W.B. Spencer, who, remember, was the savvy businessman. He was the only scammer that was left out there. And I won't bore you with the, the tale to catch him because he goes to Canada and then to Montana and all over the damn country. There's no real cool shootout move, moments or train chases or weird escapes or anything. He basically uh, goes to, I think, Utah and he finds him arrested for another crime under a different name and he's already in custody. Uh, and Spencer ends up uh, admitting that, yeah, it's me, you caught me, because he's just kind of tired of running. So does he recover any of his money? No. He ends up uh, losing his ranch. I have to say, this is Moby Dick, because th- ultimately with Moby Dick, right, yeah. he was crippled by a whale, right? And when he was crippled by the whale, he spent a lifetime chasing this white whale to ultimately being destroyed by it, being killed by it. It was like this act of revenge. He didn't know when to quit. Is, is there what's a, happened with this guy? Is there a section in Moby Dick where the whale says, good day, gentlemen, <laughs> and jumps out of a moving train? I think not. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there is. I'm pretty sure it's in there somewhere. <laughs> I haven't read it in a while. But it really is. Think about it. I, I get it, right? I mean, he's he's been scanned for so much money, you know, like a, a vulgarly large sum of money. I understand. It's funny that his name is Fury because you would be furious for something like that happening. But the fact that he lost his ranch and like he must have destroyed his entire life. Well, he did chase these guys down. Because when he got back to the ranch, it was in shambles. Like he had just traveled the country. Every last bit of extra money he had had been spent on this search. Uh, the bank eventually called in the loans that he owed them mm. and they had to sell the ranch. They had no choice. It, someone who was sympath- sympathetic to his situation ended up um, renting the ranch back to them. So they still got to live there. They just didn't own it anymore. Uh, then he tried to make money by selling his story. So by this stage, he was one of the most famous men in the country. Everyone knew the guy. Uh, so he wrote his book first, and then he created a stage play. Then he started doing speaking tours at all the places he had been on his hunt. And uh, this is how he kind of maintained his lifestyle after that. It was just selling the story. Did he actually pull himself out of the situation he was in, or did he just kind of maintain? He, he was starting to, and he ended up getting funding to star in his own silent film based on his adventures, right? And it was actually funded. It's an interesting story on how it was funded. So remember he went to the ma- that mansion in uh, Daytona? Yes. And they were running this stock exchange scam on the sec unbeknownst to um Norfleet on the second floor of that mansion was another rich businessman who was involved who was getting scammed he was at the point where he was about to hand over 75 grand of his own money for the old scam of getting the rest of it out of the exchange yeah and when uh, Norfleet t- took the two guys hostage with his guns, it caused such pandemonium that this businessman on the second floor was like, hang on a second, something doesn't seem right about this, fellas. And he ended up taking his money and leaving. Now, that businessman later learned, obviously, about Norfleet and the whole scam and realized that Norfleet had actually saved him $75,000 and got him out of this scam. You could so, toss him five grand. Years later, he came to Norfleet and says, 
you saved my life that day. Let me fund your movie. Ah. And so he they they started to fund this movie and started to. It was never released because the the year it went into production, that's when the Great Recession hit. Was it like nineteen twenty nine? Yeah, like everything oh. just went everything went to crap. Wow. Um and in between him trying to sell his story, though, this is the interesting thing that I'll leave you with. He kept apprehending criminals. He kept going after them. And he actually couldn't help it. Like, people would approach him with their stories, and before he knew it, he would be on a train pursuing some lead with a bunch of pistols in his pocket. So did he sort of become a bounty hunter? Yeah, he became a bounty hunter. In 1927, he tracked down a murderer in Arkansas and brought him to justice in Texas. This was his 77th criminal he had brought to justice. In 1928, he declared that he'd set himself a new goal of arresting one swindler for each $1,000 of the 45 k he'd lost to the Fury Gang. And in 1940, when he was 75 years old, he had arrested his 93rd man. Wow. So the author says, Amy Redding says, surely 45 of those guys must have been swindlers. So in the end, he was kind of a king. In the end, he, he, lived, he lived his own way till the end and he was a pursuer of justice. I mean, it is a good thing, but you have to wonder what sacrifices he made. You've got to wonder how that weighed on his family life and, and his marriage. It surely couldn't have been something that was was good. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's stopping swindlers and scammers and they need to be stopped. I mean, they, they destroy people, but obviously, you know, at a great cost to him, like not financially yeah. as in, you know, socially. I mean, yeah, you, you could argue that perhaps the, the better path is to let it go and take it as a lesson and continue living your life, you know, maintain what you've got. I don't know if I could. But then justice, justice is still a just cause as well. Mm. I mean- Mm. You know what? There's a, this reminds me, there's a YouTube channel that I want to give a shout out to. It's Kit Boger. Oh, yeah. And we'll link to him in the show notes. He is fantastic. He basically does, he, he pretends to be an old lady or an old man because I don't know if you get them, but I'm sure you do. You get a phone call from an overseas call center and whenever we get them, and they're normally from India, I pretend to be an old man. <laughs> they're always from India. And I've never got one from another No, neither country. have I. Actually, no, I got one from Australia. I even like, was like... Really? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, why are you doing this? Like, G'day, mate. This is Nigerian no, prince here. Just, it was just a young girl, so clearly oh. I think she'd been caught up. But what he does is because these, these scammers, the moment you answer with your normal voice, yeah. they know and they hang up on you. But if you're an older person... That's when they start scamming you. So what Kit Boger does is he pretends to be an old person and just spends as much time as possible <laughs> wasting their time yeah. so that they can't scam other it, people. It's brilliant. I've got a clip of one of the scammers getting very, very angry with him here. So basically, yeah, he goes and buys these Google cards. These yeah, gift cards, Gift right? cards. And then he has it set up so that he's running a fake operating system on his computer that the scammers can see because they've logged into his computer and he redeems the Google... He pretends to be an old lady going, oh, I'll send you the money and then he just redeems the cards because that's how to the his scam- own account. Yeah. <laughs> that's how the scam works. They say to you, go and buy these cards and then give us the codes yeah. and then that's how they get the money. But what he does is, you're right, Ben, he claims them into his own account yeah. and they get extremely irritated. Let's take a listen. Okay. So this is him pretending to be an old lady. I'm not very good with the computers. Ma'am, do not, the code, do not redeem it. <laughs> no. Okay. So he's redeeming it. He just redeemed it. 
<laughs> the guy's about to flip out. This is nine hours this scam has been on the phone with him. That's amazing. Okay. Ma'am, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Ma'am, why did you do this? Uh, come on, let me go ahead and do the next card for you then, Steve. Are you mad? Are you mad? Why are you reading cards? Steve? Are you, you, bitch? Are you mad? <laughs> why the fuck are you reading the cards? Let me scratch off the next one. He keeps going. He keeps redeeming them. Why are you reading Steve? Steve, you told me you wanted the, the cards. This is so you won't bother my family why again. Why the fuck are you redeeming? Why are you redeeming? Because you want the cash. Why did you redeem it? You. Why did you redeem it? I'm doing it because you told me to give you cash. I am going to pick your ass. It says right here. I'm going to redeem Google cards. I'm just... Gosh, calm down. He's got so many great videos. They're so good. And but yeah, you're right. Like nine hours. Some of them he does for like can be weeks at a time. And he keeps these people going yeah. and then he obviously compresses them all together for his video. Have you seen the one where he dresses up in drag and he pretends to be <laughs> a yes. Californian teenager? <laughs> <laughs> and he does a video call with the scammers. The scammers got so <laughs> caught up with him. They thought that she was a young girl called Heaven, I think. Like she calls herself Heaven or something. And he's like, oh, do you want to go on a date sometime? She's like, yeah, sure. He's like, well, let's let's video chat. <laughs> so he literally pixelates the camera as much as he can. Yeah, and gets smooths it out. Yeah. <laughs> Dresses up in a wig with some lippy on. <laughs> And he uses, he uses his vocal changer, his Roland. We've got one in the studio here too. Well, that's where I was inspired to actually get that voice changer. I can't seem to be able to get the exact same voice for the old lady, but uh, look, it's great stuff. And I'll link to it in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. Speaking of scammers, yeah. you know, we should talk about uh, some folkloric scammers because I'm convinced now that the entity that you know we dealt with, the leprechaun, on the last show, I don't think it's a leprechaun at all. I think this is some type of, of shape-shifting entity. And I say that because when you look into... You don't think it's just like a, a little dude who turned up, like it's an actual guy who just pretended to be a leprechaun? Well, the only reason... following her around? That's a possibility, but she does claim, remember, that her, her husband was with her and he said that he couldn't see it, but oh, she okay. claims that she could. Um, but if you look into the history and, and folkloric legends, there are alcoholic leprechauns, but they're not leprechauns. They're the cousin of leprechauns and they're called cluricorns. What is a cluricorn? I don't. It's like an alcoholic leprechaun, but apparently <laughs> is that the only difference? They're just like leprechauns, but they're alcoholics. Some, some suggestions that they have shape shifting abilities, but I'm not entirely sure. So I wanted to see if I could find more information about them, and there isn't a lot apart from the fact that they will basically mess your entire life up if you interact with one of these things. So normally, leprechauns. There's this history that goes that with a leprechaun, essentially, it's kind of like. They have the leprechaun economy. Mm. And leprechauns, their whole, like, from a folkloric perspective, their job is to be cobblers. You know, like, they repair oh, shoes. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they repair fairy shoes, right? right? Yeah. And they normally do it when uh, there's obviously fairy dancing going on. But whenever there's something that occurs, so there's, like, some disruption to the balance of the ecosystem where the humans come into a space and it disrupts the fairies, right? The fairies don't dance anymore. Mm -hmm. And so because the fairies aren't dancing, the leprechauns don't have any work to do their cobbling. So what they do is the leprechauns disperse out and end up in your home. This is why leprechauns end up in people's oh, homes, according to the legend. Because they're out of work. They're out of work. And so what they do... <laughs> they're out of work bums. They start appearing to people, <laughs> asking if they can do work for them right. in exchange for a gold or silver coin. 
And sometimes people are like, yeah, of course, we'll, we'll give you a gold or silver coin. This is the Irish folklore. This is the Irish folklore. Um, but if you don't give them a silver coin well, or a gold coin, mm-hmm. Well, then they'll mess up your house. They'll, you know, tear things apart, and you know, they, they can be quite uh, vindictive little monsters. But nothing as bad as a chloricorn. A chloricorn apparently will come into your house, get raving drunk, uh-huh. will drink all of your alcohol. You have to lock away your cabinetry because you can't see these things. Apparently, apparently, though, you can see the effects of what they've done. Mm. But they will get in and they will start drinking your alcohol, messing it all up. If they can't get into your alcoholic cabinet or into your liquor cabinet, they'll smash it open to get into it, according to the folklore. Then there used to be this history of large manors or large homes. And these large manors and homes would have, obviously, a larder that would be, or a basement that would be downstairs containing large barrels of wine. Mm. And what would happen is, is that if a chloricorn, this drunken leprechaun, got into your manor, and for whatever reason, it couldn't get access to the alcohol in the house, it would go down into the barrel and actually absorb into the barrel. What? Like, it would, like, take form in the barrel. And just live there. And live in the barrel, right? right and yeah. start spoiling all the wine. Oh. And so there's this story that goes that there was a clever, like, a housekeeper who was the head of the household who had been dealing with this chloricorn that had gotten in because mm. it was spoiling the wine. Like, apparently the wine you could taste, that there was something not right about it. And immediately they're like, we've got a chloricorn. They also had poltergeist-like activity going on. Yep. They didn't attribute it to a poltergeist. They attributed it to the chloricorn that was in the, in the house. But on this particular day, they drained the vats. They drained the the, the barrels, I'm sorry, of wine. What a waste. And threw, oh, a complete waste. They threw it all away. But that evening, the um, head of the housekeeper claims, and this was witnessed apparently according to the story, she was witnessed being dragged from her bed and down the stairs by an invisible force that was dragging her back to the barrels. Mm. And then there was like a screaming that was going through because it was a drunk little leprechaun. It was pissed off that they drained it and wanted <laughs> it to refill them. And so it dragged her through the house. And after that, apparently they did it and they offered it some you know, alcoholic beverages. And then they started leading it outside by leaving bottles of wine outside and it eventually disappeared. So you think the previous author you covered is just being tricked. This entity is saying it's something, but it's really one of these... I reckon it's a chloricorn. Chloricorns. Yes. Yeah, it shows up drunk constantly. And like, yeah, leprechauns. And it, it leads her on these wild goose chases. Yeah. And this is what these things do. I think there was one other story that I was reading, which is this traditional story, but it relates to a chloricorn that had somehow, they mess with water, right? So what they do is that uh, if you run into a chloricorn, it's not just that they're, they're apparently they're surly all the time. They're mm. not happy drunks. Mm. Like they're really surly, angry drunks. And the legend goes that these things, like, you know that you've got one, because apparently they're seen, like, riding around the backs of dogs. They'll just grab hold of the backs of dogs' manes or, or like, their hair, obviously, but the manes of horses as well, and we'll just ride them around. And then you know that you've got them on your property. But what they'll do is that they don't like to drink alone. So if you piss off a chloricorn, and simply you could just be living in your house, that's all it takes with one of these things. They're angry drunks. What it will do is it will curse you so that you can't absorb water. So what happens is, is that people, when they try to shower, uh, everything will just pour off them. It's like there's some, your Teflon to mm. water. And, uh, but on top of that, you can't drink water. So the only thing that they can drink is beer. So you end up getting drunk with the chloricorn because all that you can do is drink alcohol. You can't drink water. Is this some kind of rabies explanation for rabies? Yeah, maybe, yeah. It could be as well, going back that <laughs> we far. We're hydrophobic. Yeah. But, but well, if you can drink beer, though. So if you're hydrophobic, you'd be scared yeah. of any liquids. But maybe you're right. Um, but the legend goes is that you, because you can't drink this, apparently you have to make an offering to this leprechaun with some type of gift and mm. groveling apology. 
And then in doing so, like the story with the barrels, is that finally it will release this this curse and I'll let you, set you free. So have you contacted the previous author? What's her name again? Uh, Tannis? Was it, it was Tannis? Tannis. Yeah, Tannis Halliwell. Have you let her know? No. <laughs> no, I haven't. I think after I was uh, slightly critical of <laughs> well, the story that I thought... should listen mm. to the episode and then you'd be screwed. <laughs> Uh-oh. I thought I should be quiet about that one. But you know what? I actually, as I, I was going through it and, and looking at that, it reminded me of actually of a couple of stories that... So the, the whole cursing thing, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of got my attention. I just saw this week actually that uh, in Japan at the moment, there's a, a leading occult researcher by the name of Yuki Yoshida. She's claiming that the um, essentially the effects of what's happening with the Tokyo Olympics at the moment is the result of the Tokugawa curse. What's happening with the Tokyo Olympics? I've watched literally nothing. So it's down to the point now where I believe that you're not allowed, you're not allowed to have any spectators there. So, I mean, kind of what's the point? They could so. still compete. Um, but essentially, so no one's watching it. No one's watching it. Yeah, they're kind of going through exactly what you know other lockdown locations are going through. Um, but it's causing huge amounts of damage to their economy. They spent a huge amount of money to obviously prepare for this, and they haven't really been able to utilize it because they can't have people come from around the world. Mm. And that's where the money comes in. Yeah. So it'd be a massive loss. Yeah. Well, the Tokugawa curse. This is quite intriguing because what this relates to is apparently back in November of 2019, it was announced that. 187 human bodies had been excavated between 2013 and 2015 from the construction site of Tokyo's Olympic Stadium. And so this, like, they kept this under wraps for a few years. It turns out that this particular area where the stadium is being built is right on the top of an Edo period cemetery. Uh-oh. Never a good sign, never a good thing to do. So, I mean, apparently that this sort of discovery isn't particularly surprising because you've got old burial, burial sites all across, you know, Tokyo from the Edo period um, and from other periods as well. So, and of course, after the Second World War, where Tokyo was essentially, you know, raised by firebombing, they're rebuilding everything and rebuilding everything. Of course, you're going to dig up these cemeteries. Yeah. But according to Yuki, there's more to it than that. This particular location is associated with the Tokugawa shogunate. So this area essentially was is that the Tokugawa shogunate uh, ruled feudal Japan back in the Edo period. And when they were overthrown in 1868, uh, the descendants still owned these parts, this land, right? And they owned it all the way up until I think it was around uh, 1943 or so. But back in 1940, there was the Phantom Olympics. So the Tokyo, well, Japan was going to host the 1940 Olympics, but didn't because of the Second World War. Yep. And it became known as the Phantom Olympics. But um, essentially in 1943, the Tokyo government just bought up all this land. When they bought up all this land, though, because of the overthrowing of the Tokugawa shogunate, there was this curse attached to it. And anyone that was doing anything on this land ultimately had trouble befall them, like terrible things would take place. And so apparently this is why there's some suggestion here that this curse is so terrible that this links in with the global pandemic. It's unexpected, but this is just how bad this curse is. Now, if you go back- So it's not COVID, it's an Edo period- It's an Edo period- Japanese ghost curse. Yes, because we unearthed these bodies in 2013, well, they did in 2013 to 2015. So I'm like, mm, I'm not entirely sure if I could buy that completely. I'm but... 100% convinced right now. <laughs> but if you look into some of the history, there's uh, companies that have built buildings on these particular sites previously, like massive multinational corporations have collapsed 
after building a single building yeah. on one of these locations. There's also back in 1964. So that's when Japan finally, or Tokyo, did actually get the Olympics. So in 1964, they dug a tunnel in this area, in the uh, Sendagaya Tunnel, right? And this is one of the most haunted locations, apparently, in Tokyo, if not in Japan. And when they dug this tunnel through, nothing was said. It was all kept quiet. But people started reporting that, again, connected with the Tokugawa group, um, but were claiming that when they drive their cars through, all of a sudden they'd get these strange handprints that would appear on the glass of their car that came from nowhere. Uh, Other people claimed even more outrageous things, such as there being uh, a woman in a long, flowing kind of shawl hanging upside down from inside the tunnel that would be... (laughs) that would be trying to attack cars as they drove past. It just so happens that this particular tunnel went directly underneath one of these Edo period cemeteries. (laughs) I should have played the sound effect then. It's too early. (laughs) Too early on the trigger. So, look, I'll link to this in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org so you can read the full details. It's very strange. I mean, there's something that's very odd going on here that it does seem like there is some, I wouldn't say a whole... Would Are go- you backing away from the origins of the COVID disaster being a Japanese ghost story? Are you backing away from that? No, I'm not compl- publicly on the show. I'm not completely backing away. Oh, from you're that. not. I think, no, I think that there. So is you something- do stand by this this claim that COVID was created by Japanese ghost ghosts. <laughs> This is your this is your your hill you're dying no, on. I'm, I'm not going to die on that particular hill. I like, but I like the curse idea, right? I like these ideas because it's like it's it's a strange little tradition as well. Like it's, you should post that on Twitter or YouTube and see if you get banned for it. <laughs> you, you, you get a message saying it's against COVID this health. This is disputed. Yeah, this is disputed. You'll get banned. I actually should It'll do get that. Removed. That'd be great. I would absolutely love that. That would be really really good. Yeah, I saw there's a lot of crazy stuff actually coming out of Japan with the Olympics at the moment. I was even reading an article the other day saying that um, Akira apparently predicted the chaos of 2020. So oh, I when go- is that movie dated to? Well, I don't know. 2020, I guess. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, I'll have to go back and, and check it. But uh, I, haven't, I didn't even realize the Olympics were on. Yeah. Yeah, that's how bad it's been. I usually at least tune into some of it. Yeah. yeah. Is, it wow. a- is it actually on at the moment right now? I don't even know. Like- I don't know. Can you watch it? Is anything actually happening? I have no idea. <laughs> that's, how, know. that's how bad it is. I just know that spectators, um, the last thing I saw, which was only this week, is that spectators have been banned from events. Well, surely it hasn't started yet. No one can fly into the country, but what's the point? You don't have spectators. No one can come into the country. It starts in 10 days. That's yeah. why no one's watching it. Well, it hasn't even started. Yeah, well, what a, but there's still <laughs> spectators are banned. Well, well, technically they're banned from going and watching anything because not, there's nothing to watch because it hasn't started. No, but they've actually been banned from going there. <laughs> so it's going to be a very, very sad kind of Olympics. So yeah, I'll link to the article for yourself. I'm going to look more into the Tokugawa curse though because I saw that the Tokugawa curse was also associated with uh, some swords. Apparently there were swords that were recovered from a sunken ship that anyone who touched these swords ended up being cursed in a horrible way and dying a terrible death. So there is something to this curse kind so of So because the Olympics hasn't started, it starts in 10 days, one hour, two minutes and eight seconds, there is a still still a chance that the Tokugawa curse could fully rear its power. Could be. We'll but no one will be watching. <laughs> <laughs> so it won't matter. Well, maybe that's just an increase in ghostly activity, but just no one will see it one little no one there. One little Japanese lady in the stands like... <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's probably going to be it. That's sad. It, it is. It's very, very sad. But also, apparently, it's got something to do with, there's also a belief in the uh, the 40-year intervals. So it's like when um, the 1940 games happened, 
there's some traditional belief that anything that happens at the quadrennial point is associated with bad activity as well. But that's because I think Japan has an issue with the number four as well, because it means death. It sounds like death. So I don't know. It's just very intriguing when you start seeing these things starting to happen and people trying to look at more. Yeah, I mean, probably it's just a terrible event, bad luck that's taken place. But then when you match it up with messing with funerals and messing with uh, cemeteries, I'm sorry, maybe it's not such a good thing. I think it's time for you to go live with your theories on COVID. I think I might do that. I'll see if I get banned from Twitter. I have been trying to get banned from Twitter and it hasn't happened yet, so... Well, you should unlock your account and just start dropping N-bombs and <laughs> talking about your COVID conspiracy. It will take you about 10 minutes to get banned. I just, no, I'm just so sick of Twitter that I just <laughs> shut it down for a while. Like, you know what? I'm just going to keep it shut down. It's a cesspool. Lovely. There are some really lovely people there, but overall, I'm like, eh, yeah, just shut it down for a while. Okay, well, I'm going to try and find a suitable 1920s gangster cover art for this episode. Okay. Although I did say on the last show that I'm going to try, try and make it as impossible to understand as I can for the the Barnacle audience. So when they look at the artwork, they're like, what the hell is... So I'm going to try and find like a 1920s guy jumping out of a train. Good luck with that one. (laughs) You're probably going to be here for a couple of hours tonight and that's, yep, that's dedication. Maybe I'll just do like a 1920s guy in a hat. Just put a massive train. That'll work. Just a guy in a hat. (laughs) You know what? Smashed glass. That'll work. Yeah, Yeah, there you go. That's really, yeah. Go with that. That's a wrap for this show. Thank you so much for being on Plus. Have a great week. We'll catch you on Friday for your next MU. See you then.